I wonder if any of you have got a Latin motto for your family. Have, have any of you got a Latin motto? A family crest? Once I went to someone's house and proudly on the wall they had this great big crest with a Latin motto. I had no idea what it meant for their family. Probably if you come from one of these really illustrious, you know, long established families, you might have something like that. Did you know that Brighton has a crest and a Latin motto? So Anya, first slide please. Now, you don't really see this much these days. In, in the old days when we had civic pride rather than the pride festival, you used to have buildings and great kind of civic works, parks with this symbol on. So this is the official symbol of Brighton before it was joined together with Hove. And if you look at the bottom, there's a Latin motto. Now, I'm not really sure if I'm, I'm saying this correctly because we never learned Latin at school. I think, Carmen, you, you know Latin, don't you? So you could read it for us. What does it say, Carmen? Yeah. It says, Inter undes et colles florimus, which means, does anybody know? Between the downs and the sea, we flourish. A rather appropriate motto for Brighton. Now, if we had to make a Latin motto for the church, what would we choose? Not suggesting we actually do this, but if we, we, if we were to do this, what would we choose for the church of Jesus Christ? Well, we could do worse than to adopt this motto. So next slide, please, Anya. So this is e pluribus unum, which is actually the official Latin motto of the United States of America. And you can see it there used on a coin. Does anybody know what that means? That's right, from many one. Now, it's quite a nice idea, isn't it, that you've got many people joined together in one country and somehow they're so different and yet they're united together. And it's rather idealistic, so I don't think there's actually a country in the world where people are so united, they're like one people. I mean, even in our own country, we see the divisions, don't we, amongst people. I'm sure America's just the same. But is it true about the church? Is it true that we are one out of many? You remember Jesus, before he died, he prayed, didn't he, that prayer for unity in the church. He said, I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. So Jesus prayed that his people that came in future generations would be one, just as he is in the Father and the Father is in him. Did God answer that prayer? I've often pondered this. We look at the church. The church seems to be so divided and disunited. Did God ever answer that prayer for unity that Jesus prayed on that night before he died to save us? Well, I want to suggest to you today, not suggest to you, I want to make a claim today that the Bible does teach that that prayer was answered and that that prayer will be fully answered on the day that Jesus comes back and all things are united fully in him. In this passage in Ephesians, we read about three types of unity. It's important we understand the differences between these types of unity. They're not all the same, and they won't all fully be realized in this life. So there will come a time when they are realized fully in Christ, but at the moment, they're not fully realized. The first unity that's mentioned here is position, I've called it positional unity. These are my titles, not in the Bible. Positional unity. So if you look at verses 4 and 5 of this chapter, Paul talks about various 
truths, various things which are true for Christians. All Christians. So we'll come to this in a minute, but he's talking about things which are absolutely true, which are given to us, which, which refer to our position in Christ. And this prayer has been answered fully because these things are ours now. We are united in these things as Christians. Whoever we are, whatever stage we are of the Christian walk, these things are ours in their fullness. The second type of unity which is mentioned here is, I, I call it relational unity. So if you look at the first part of this, he talks about being humble and gentle. And this is talking about our relationship, the relationship between Christians. Now we know, don't we, that this, this, this unity is not fully realised in this life. One day it will be. But at the moment, we still have to maintain and work towards that. More of that in a minute. So we've got positional unity and relational unity, the relationship between Christians. And there's another type of unity which Paul mentions here, which I've called developmental unity, or a unity of maturity, a unity of Christ-likeness. This is to do with Christian maturity. This, this is to do with Christian growth. And we see this in... Um, Verses 12, 13, 14, when it talks about Christians growing to the fullness of Christ, to unity in the faith. And once again, this is not fully realised, this side of eternity. But it will be one day. But let's start, first of all, with relational unity, because that's what Paul starts with. So, we talk, this is, once again, it's talking about the relationship between Christians. So, look at verse 1 of chapter 4. Paul says, as a prisoner of the Lord. I want to stop there for a minute. So, why does Paul mention this? He's a prisoner, he suffered for his faith. Why does he mention this when he he talks about Christian unity? Well, surely the reason is that Paul being in prison for his faith lends credibility to his words. If someone has been so committed to Christ and willing to suffer for the cause of Christ, and that person's words ought to be listened to. That person is, is living out the words that they speak. There's a reality there. You know, I believe this so much I'm willing to suffer and go to prison and even die for my faith. And because of that, listen to me. Listen to what I have to say, because this is reality. And I, I wonder what the suffering church would say to us as Christians today in the West. Yesterday I picked up the Barnabas Fund newsletter. Lots of stories there about atrocities and persecutions committed against Christians all around the world. Children younger than my children standing up for Christ and suffering in terrible ways. What would the suffering church say to us? Surely they would say the same thing, wouldn't they? It's Paul, I urge you, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Praise God we have freedom. At, the, at this present time, but let's, we need to use it, don't we? We need to not misuse it. So Paul appeals to them as a suffering Christian. Now, I want you to look at this, this word. There's a small word which you can miss very easily in verse, verse, uh, verse 1 of chapter 4. As a prisoner for the Lord, then. And that little word, then, makes all the difference. What this word tells us is that Paul is making a transition from doctrine to application. He spends the first three chapters of Ephesians 
talking about some of the most exalted, magnificent truths about Christ and the church and God's purposes for his church and his own glory. He explains in great depth what Christ has done. He works hard to help people have a greater understanding of the blessings that Christians have in Christ. And then he he comes on to this. Then, therefore, for this reason, this is what you ought to do in response to this. And, And dear friends, when we hear these truths about Christ, we're meant to be excited. We're meant to be stirred up by these truths. It's not just a load of information that's imparted to us. We're meant to be roused and moved to live a life which is worthy of Christ when we hear the great glories of the gospel. And Paul, what Paul does, he does the job of a pastor and a teacher. He helps the Christians understand their high calling. And he could have just left it there, couldn't he? He could have left it to them to work out the implications of this. And I've heard sometimes in churches people do this. You know, theology can be a very safe little world, can't it? We spend all day talking about great truths, but you never get down to the question, so what does this mean for me in my life? We need theology, and praise God, we're part of a church where the word of God is expounded. We need that. It's absolutely vital. But also there comes that question, then, the word then, therefore, what does it mean? What's the application? And Paul does this, doesn't he? He doesn't just leave it to them to work out what it means for themselves. Yes, of course, the Holy Spirit applies the word to us but we also need pastors don't we and teachers who can do that as well the pastor's job is to take you from wonder what God has done to what now what does it mean for me what does it mean for us as a church the teaching ministry helps you to understand your high calling in Christ and understand how to work live it out in a worthy way in your context now When Paul says this, I urge you to live a life, what's he doing? Is he giving them a command? Is he giving them an order? No, he's not, is he? What he's doing, he's making making an appeal to them. He's appealing to them as Christian people. And that is the way the word of God is to be taught. And pastors and teachers are to to appeal to the people of God. And the way we, we appeal to each other as Christians. It's not a law. It's not a command. But we say, hang on, brothers and sisters, this is, isn't this the right way to live as Christians? Isn't this a worthy way to live? We're a privileged people. We're God's new community, brought together, Jews and Gentiles together, called to be sons of God, called to be holy and blameless. Shouldn't we live up to this? Shouldn't we live in a way which is worthy of our calling? And that's, if you see some Christian or a brother or sister who's struggling and living in a way which is not worthy of the gospel, the way to approach them is not to, to criticise them or to be harsh with them, but to appeal to them with the Bible open and say, brother and sister, what do you think about this? Isn't this the right way to live? Isn't this the best way to live? Isn't this a worthy way to live? In love, speaking the truth in love. Living a life worthy of the calling. Friends, we need to understand the calling that God has called us to as Christians. It's a high calling. It's a privileged calling. It's the greatest calling in the universe. The highest privileges are ours. We are more privileged here today than the greatest rulers of the world, kings and queens, celebrities. We have all the blessings, spiritual blessings. But the word of God makes it clear there is a right and a wrong way to live as a Christian. 
It's not true to say that anything goes as Christian. I'm a Christian, I can live however I want. Fill my life with sinful or worldly things. Worldly behaviours, worldly, worldly lifestyle choices. These are not fitting for sons and daughters of the king. These are not fitting for God's new humanity, his community, the body of Christ. There's a right and a proper way to live. Now, people often talk about guidance in the church, in the Christian life. How do I get guidance for my life? Now, one thing that can help you look at a situation and discern God's will in that situation is to ask yourself this question. Is this course of action worthy of a Christian? Understanding my calling in Christ, is this, kind of, is this, is this behavior, is this choice worthy of a Christian? Maybe it's not, in which case we need to not do it because it dishonors God, displeases him. And that applies to absolutely everything in our lives, doesn't it? Every part of our lives, the smallest detail, is it worthy of a Christian or is it unworthy? There have been times in my life, even as a Christian, I've been caught in situations which have been unworthy of my calling. And I knew, my, my conscience told me, the Holy Spirit prompted me, Ben, you shouldn't be here, you shouldn't be doing this, this is not worthy. I don't mean that in an arrogant way, we're, we're, we're kind of high and mighty, it's not about that. It's a, there's a right way to live, and a worthy way to live. There's a worthy way to respond to people, isn't there? The words that come out of our mouths. You know, the, the way I talk to my wife. Is it worthy as a, as a Christian to speak like that? The way I correct people, the way I engage with people, the way I do my work on a Monday morning, is it worthy of a Christian? When a Christian makes a biblical appeal to you, he urges you to live a life worthy of the calling. How you respond to that reveals a lot about your spiritual condition. Recently I heard um, from another church a young lady who was dating a non-Christian boyfriend and some of the girls in the church were concerned about her, and rightly so, and they went to her and they said, what's going on? They appealed to her, they said, this is not right as a Christian, you shouldn't be doing this. And that girl got terribly offended and this girl and all her friends turned their backs on these girls who challenged them and didn't want to hear it and said, you're judgmental. And you, 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 know, you, you should accept me the way I am. And friends, if you're in a situation where somebody opens the Bible and, and brings you the word of God and appeals to you and says, this is the worthy way to live as a Christian, because they love you. If you respond to it with this hardness and this bitterness, this anger, what does it say about your spiritual condition? That you cannot be taught. Your heart is so hardened that you cannot accept the admonition of a brother or sister. We need to avoid this, don't we, in the church, this kind of prickliness, this anger when people... It's not nice to be confronted. It's not nice to be challenged. It's not pleasant, but it's what we need sometimes. You know, somebody urges you to come to communion more often, and you get angry, and you get offended. Don't be like that. This person's telling you something which is biblical, speaking the truth in love. That's that's if if they are speaking the truth in love. If they're not, then that's different. The Christian, the greatest desire of a Christian should be to walk in a way which is worthy of the Lord. We don't do it perfectly, I don't do it perfectly, but we want to do it. Our greatest desire is to live a life which is worthy of him, to bring glory to him. Now, coming on now to verse 2. 
completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Friends, the high calling that we've received as Christians should not make us arrogant or proud. My dad grew up in the east end of London and he was surrounded by a Jewish community and he always remembers talking to some of his Jewish friends and their parents. And uh, one man in particular was very proud. He said, we, we Jews are the chosen people, as though somehow they'd, they'd earned that by their own merit. We Christian people, we don't have this high calling because we're, we're holy people. Not because we chose Christ, but because he chose us by sovereign grace and set his love upon us and saved us. Completely by grace, showed his favour to us. The Lord Jesus Christ died for our sins. And that kind of understanding of our high calling doesn't make us arrogant or proud. It shouldn't do. We're not better than those sinners outside. We're sinners saved by grace. And Paul makes it very clear, in order to preserve the relational unity of the church, that he calls it the bond of peace, the unity of the spirit, we need, we need to be very careful, don't we, how we relate to each other. And he mentions here, doesn't he, be humble and gentle. In our society, people do not prize humility and gentleness. And nothing's changed, because even in the time when this was written, people, the Greek culture was extremely proud and valued pride and, you know, boastfulness. But Christians are not to be like that. Let me be honest, I, I struggle with this at times. Be patient. The word there is long-suffering. Being, being prepared to, to overlook the faults of others. It's not talking about serious sin, so I can't say, well, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm kind of, you know, uh, I don't know, defrauding the church and stealing money, but that's okay, you've, you've got to kind of bear with me because it's just my, that's, it's not talking about serious misdemeanors. It's talking about day-to-day life of the church, bearing with, with each other, being patient, being kind, being humble, not thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought to. These are, these are the Christ-like ways. Think of Philippians. Later on in this passage, we, we think about the, the humiliation of Jesus when he came down, the incarnation. He came down to this world and emptied himself of everything and went to the cross. Think about that, brothers and sisters. The Lord Jesus Christ came down from heaven, left his glory, and came down and humbled himself, emptied himself, and became nothing, made himself nothing. I think when we struggle with this, we need to go back to Jesus, don't we? Look at him. We want God to be patient with us, don't we? If we want God to be patient with us, we need to extend that same patience to each other. We need to bear with each other for the sake of unity. In this church, in every church, we've got a a diverse group of people, different backgrounds, different ages, different personalities. Praise God for that. The church is diverse. That's absolutely right. It should be like that. It's inevitable. You can't avoid it. In the group of people in the church, you're going to find some people you get on with more than others. They're people you naturally click with, and they're people that get on your nerves. Let me say this, there are people people that find you annoying too, probably. But that's the reality, isn't it? We're not perfect people. We come together, we rub, rub each other up the wrong way. It's true in a marriage, isn't it? Isn't it, Anya? It's true. Everywhere where you find Christians, you find people struggling to get along. You know, we have, we have got obnoxious personalities and idiosyncrasies and things in us which people find hard to deal with. We want everyone to be just like us. 
Thank goodness they're not. We need to work hard, don't we, to to maintain this. Look at verse 3. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. What is this unity of the Spirit? Well, we know the unity of the Spirit. In a sense, there is a unity of the Spirit which is unbreakable, which Christians have because we're Christians. We have the Holy Spirit within us. But I think what Paul's talking about here is that the bond of peace is that kind of the rule which governs everyday relationships between us. We have peace and harmony, good relationships, love, long-suffering, peace, gentleness. But how easily that can be broken by harsh attitudes and harsh words and selfishness and pride. And that bond of peace is broken. So we may still have that spiritual unity, but it's broken. And to all, to all intents and purposes, that, that unity is lost because we can't even speak to each other. You know, when Annie and I, we sometimes, you know what it's like when you're in your, your married life, when sometimes things come out of nowhere, absolutely nowhere, you have a row. You think, where did that come from? You're not speaking to each other. We've still got absolute unity in the spirit. We're still Christian people, but that bond has been broken. We're not talking to each other. We're not relating as we should be in a Christ-like way. And it needs to be restored. It needs to be, to be knitted back together again. Otherwise, it's like two ligaments being torn from each other. We should not be torn. That affection for each other has been broken. What's the alternative to this? If we don't have this humility, we don't heed this advice, this guidance, you know, having humility and patience and kindness. Well, the alternative is very unattractive, isn't it? Unhelpful and unworthy responses. All of which damage relational unity in the church. If you have a grudge against somebody, if you cannot bear with somebody... It's going to come out in a variety of ways, all of which are unattractive, all of which damage the church. So some people respond to it by building up that grudge and not saying anything, but getting more and more angry every week and seeing that person seething and gossiping about that person. They just bury it within, and sooner or later it's going to come out in this big, ugly eruption when you least expect it, and it's going to be ugly and horrible and cause division in the church. And some people respond to it by withdrawing from meaningful fellowship. So I've got a grudge against my brother. I'm going to try and avoid him as much as possible and avoid church and just kind of keep away. Very destructive path to be on. You know, isn't it a tragedy when Christians get divorced? Now, I don't know if anyone in this room has been in a situation where two Christian people, I've heard about this before, where two Christian people decide they have to end their marriage. There's no, there's no choice. They can't continue. Isn't that a tragedy that the closest of all human relationships, that bond of peace has been broken to such an extent that they cannot abide each other and cannot stay together? You know, friends, the Bible never ever tells us to leave a church. There may be very good biblical reasons to leave a church. If your church is apostate, it's turning away from the truth, you may have to leave a church, but it's a last resort. In the book of Ephesus, in the city of Ephesus, there was no other church to go to. There wasn't another church just down the road that you could go to if you didn't like the church that Paul was writing to. The good thing about that was that you had to stay and deal with it in the church. Isn't it good for your character development as a Christian to learn to bear with people, to be patient, to exercise humility? Don't be the kind of Christian that's always frustrated and disgruntled with people. 
you may have legitimate concerns about church. You may say, oh, I don't like this. I don't. But, you know, very often, friends, when I get critical of other people and can't bear with them, there's a massive log in my own eye which needs to be removed. Christian love hopes and believes the best in people. It's not naive. We know people aren't perfect. We know we're not perfect, but we hope and believe the best. We do everything we can to maintain that bond of peace, the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. And if we struggle to do this, what's the remedy? To look at Christ again. Look what makes it possible for us to be part of him. The grace of God, which cannot be described. Jerome spoke last week about the love of Christ, which cannot be measured or fathomed. Look at that. Let's be humbled again. Not, you know, that the things that we, we find annoying in other people are very minor, aren't they, compared to the glory of Christ, what he's done for us. Now, that was relational unity. So let's, we really need to do this because it's, ugly, it's an ugly thing and a horrible thing and a destructive thing where that, that bond is broken in a church where genuine Christians are at loggerheads with each other and in conflict with each other because they cannot take the advice that Paul gives here. And you know what? It could happen in our church. It may already be happening. I don't know. If it is, we need to stop it right where it is. Right now, we need to deal with it as best we can. You might need to talk to an elder. But let's not let this, this stuff become a massive, growing carbuncle, growing bigger and bigger, destroying the church. Firstly, that was relational unity. Now we look at positional unity. You know, friends, unity is a massive, massive theme in the book of Ephesians. It might actually be the biggest theme. Christ bringing people together. You know, friends, Jews and Gentiles could not have been more different. They were utterly opposed. The Jews were God's people. They'd given the law, the law and the promises to. The Gentiles were outside that, outside the covenant. And in Christ, they've been brought together into this one new man, this one body, reconciled to him. The moment you believed in Christ, the moment you put your trust in him as saviour, you, you, you were united to him and all his people living and dead. The church here and the church in heaven. And these things here that Paul is going on to list are true of every single Christian. Whether you meet in a cathedral, whether you meet in a cellar somewhere in a country where persecution is rife, it doesn't matter. These truths are for you. Whatever culture you come from, if you're a true Christian, if you've been born again by the Holy Spirit, you can say, this is true about me. Now look here what Paul says. Verse 4. There is one body... One spirit. Let's look at the body first of all. So the body here is talking about the church of Jesus Christ. The body, the metaphor of the body is the most common, one of the most common pictures of the Christ in the, New, of, of, of the church in the New Testament. And there is one church, one body. Now we know, don't we, there are many Christian churches, even in the city there are many churches. What Paul is not saying here is that there should be a kind of organisational unity of churches. So it doesn't matter that there are different churches. We don't all have to try and pool our resources and come together to be one great big church in Brighton and Hove. There have been misguided attempts to try and unify churches. So you get some Christians who, who take this prayer of Jesus and they say, well, it's so important that we have unity as Christians. Let's try and uni unify churches in a kind of contrived way. So what they'll do, they'll kind of boil down their list of beliefs to a very basic list and then try to unite together with all kinds of liberals who deny the Bible, or people who promote wickedness, people who don't believe fundamental and important gospel truths. So they try and bring them together in some kind of unholy alliance. 
But friends, minimising doctrinal unity will not unite a church, will not build up the church of Christ. I remember once in my hometown, we went on this Easter march. There's kind of a walk of witness through the town centre. When I was a young Christian, I went on it. And there was a vicar there, and I, I spoke to that vicar a week before, and that vicar basically denied the gospel. He didn't believe Jesus was the only way to heaven. He was very liberal in all sorts of ways. And I saw him walking on that march. I thought to myself, why am I on this march with this vicar? I mean, there are lots of good Christians there, but you know, it implies to people that we believe the same thing when we don't. There are massive differences. I don't believe he believes the biblical gospel. He certainly believes in a different Christ to me. So we don't need to try and unite the church in this kind of fake way by minimising doctrine, by minimising truth. Truth is vitally important. That's what Paul's getting at here. Last week I got an email from the Sussex, University of Sussex Christian Union. They said to me, do you believe in our doctrinal statement, our statement of faith? And I was very pleased that these students cared enough about the truth to have a doctrinal statement. Some churches, you, you go to their website, there's nothing about what they believe. All kinds of stuff about their activities, but nothing about the gospel, about what they believe, their beliefs, their, you know, the, the foundation. We need to have that as Christians. Truth is important. So we have one body, the church. And all Christians all over the world, if they're true Christians born again by the Spirit, they are part of that church universal. We read the creed earlier. It talks about the Holy Catholic Church. It's not talking about the Roman Catholic Church, which is, is a false church. It's talking about the, the universal church, of which we are a part through faith in Christ. And as I said, it doesn't matter how different we are as Christians. We may be extremely different in every other way, but we we are united in Christ as part of his church. There's one body and one spirit. It's talking about the Holy Spirit. Now, Ephesians talks a lot about the Holy Spirit and his work in the church. All Christians have been born into God's family through the work of the Holy Spirit. If you get a chance this afternoon, go through Ephesians and write down all the things that Paul says about the Holy Spirit. He calls him the spirit of wisdom and revelation. In chapter 2 he says we've been marked in him with a seal. A seal guaranteeing our salvation. Through him we have access to the Father. So Make a list of all the things the Holy Spirit does and be amazed by the Holy Spirit. Jerome said last week, someone said about Calvary Church, this this church doesn't have the Holy Spirit because we don't speak in tongues and do all the other kind of stuff that people associate with the work of the Holy Spirit. Friends, if we haven't got the Holy Spirit, we're in big trouble because we're not a true biblical church. But what does the Holy Spirit look like when he's working in a church? What's the evidence the Holy Spirit is there in a church? Exactly, transformed lives. Conviction of sin, transformed lives, the power of God to transform a sinner into somebody who's holy and blameless, conformed to the image of Christ with his fullness dwelling in them. You know, friends, wherever you go in the world, you might meet a fellow believer and you would have instant unity with that person. So if I were to go to the most remote tribe of the Amazon in a canoe, going down the Amazon River, and I meet this tribe of people and I meet a Christian brother there who has the Holy Spirit in him and believes these truths, I would have more in common with him. We might not be able to commune with each other. we have to learn his language. But I would have more in common with him than I would with a fellow Englishman. Because we have the Holy Spirit in us. And I think this is my brother. He is, we, we worship Christ together. We have the same Lord, the same Spirit. He's part of the same universal church. 
And you, you've done that. You've gone to a, to a remote place. You've met somebody who's a Christian. You just know. You sense in your spirit, this person is a believer. Of course, there are, there are people who call themselves Christians, but you, you have no spiritual unity with them at all. You think, we, we're not on the same wavelength here. We're completely different in terms of what we believe. That was one spirit. And one hope. Look at this. One hope. Verse 4. When you were called. That hope is talking about the Christian hope of the return of Christ and all the blessings that will come when Christ returns. The redemption of our souls. It's very important as Christians, isn't it? We don't just focus on this life. We don't just focus on doing good now. We do good now, but we focus on on the redemption of our souls and the return of Christ and the glories that will come, which is what we hope for. This week, last week, I was speaking to a widow. dear old lady who was very troubled about her soul and I was comforting her about the return of Christ, the blessed hope. What could be more comforting to know that this terrible world will be one day reconciled and all things will be united in Christ? What else does Paul say in verse 4? One Lord. He's talking about the Lord Jesus. Have you noticed here he mentions one Lord, one Spirit, and one God and Father of all. So this is Trinitarian. He mentions here all three members of the Trinity. One Lord Jesus. Isn't that the most radical statement in the world? You can say, Jesus is Lord. Only a Christian can say that with sincerity. Many people say Jesus is Lord, but only a true Christian, born by the Spirit, can say that with sincerity. Jesus is Lord. And he's the only Lord, and there's no other Lord. There's no other way. There's nobody else worthy of praise. Nobody else died for my sins. Nobody else was raised up and glorified. It's always been a subversive statement to say Jesus is Lord. People are happy for you to have Jesus as a prophet. My Muslim friends have no problem with that. Oh, Jesus is a prophet, or he's a guru, or some kind of great man. But Jesus is Lord, to whom I will bow one day. But is Jesus really Lord? Is he Lord of our church? Is he Lord of our lives? Or is it just a word we've we've learned to repeat? It's easy to say, isn't it? If he really was Lord, if he were Lord, then we would obey him. We'd want to please him. We would make him Lord of our lives in every area. Now look at this. One faith. This is talking about the truths that Christians believe. All Christians. And these are non-negotiable. If people don't believe these, then they're straying away from the historic faith which is handed down once for all to the saints. We're not free to make up our own creed and set of beliefs about Jesus. We have to accept everything that's here. This is a whole package. All these things must be believed and must be accepted to be part of the true church. And if you don't, then you're not part of the true church. We have one faith and it's grounded. The Bible's not ambiguous. There are certain things in the Bible which are hard to understand, but the truth is given to us. What we need to know is plain in the word. that We might believe it and hold on to it and hold fast to it and teach it. One faith, one way, one Lord. And friends, this has to do with evangelism as well. I was thinking about this. Verse 12 talks about works of service. When you think about evangelism, when you think about preaching the gospel to the lost, this is what we proclaim, this package of beliefs. This is what we stand firm on. There is no other way. There is one Lord. There is one way. We need to, proclaim, we need to make sure people hear this and understand this. People want to come to God on their own terms. You can't do that. You come to him in the way that he prescribes. Otherwise you can't come at all. And that way is through Jesus Christ. Born again by the Spirit. 
One baptism. Now, this doesn't mean there's, there's one right mode of baptism. I, I believe in adult baptism, but some people believe in baptizing children. But whatever happens, whatever you believe about baptism, the fact is, baptism is the, the symbol of entry into the Christian church. It's what Christ commanded us to do, to be baptized as a symbol of being born again by the Spirit and entering the Christian church and making the declarations all in sundry that I am a Christian and I've turned my back on my old life and now Jesus Christ is my Lord. And all true Christians everywhere in the world should be baptized. What else does he say? Verse 6, one God and Father of all. Now look at this, I want to unpick this a little bit, unpack this. One God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. What does this mean? Is it a kind of pantheistic um, idea that somehow God is in everything? So I go up to Stanmore Park and I worship a tree and God is somehow in that tree or God is in the sunset or God is in, in, you know, I'm listening to beautiful music, classical music and God is there. But of course, God is the creator of that tree and God is the one who enabled people to produce beautiful music. But God is not in that in that kind of pantheistic sense. It's not what this is talking about. This is talking about the church of Jesus Christ. One God and Father of all. Now, God is not the Father of all human beings. He is, in a general sense, he's the creator of all human beings, but he's the Father of those who put their their trust in Jesus Christ, who have access to him by one spirit. When it says he is over all, that means that he is the Lord of the church, the ruler of the church, the one who is supreme in the church. And that's true, isn't it, about the Father? He is, the, he is over the church. And through all, he's, he's through all. What does this mean? It means that God is working out his purposes through the church. It's quite hard to understand this, but he's, he's present amongst us. He's working out his purpose. The church is fundamental to God's purpose for his creation, for the glorification of his Son. God is working through his church. He's through us, working amongst us. What else does it say? And in all, so I've mentioned this already, Christ dwells in us by his spirit. The Father is present amongst us. That God is in his people. God is using his people to achieve his purposes. So all these, all these truths that I've mentioned, these are all things which Christians share, this positional unity which are non-negotiable, which are fully realized now in this life, unlike the other types of unity. And if you're not a Christian... You're sitting here today, you know you're not born again. You, you, you might believe some of these things, but you're not really sure. If you put your trust in Jesus, if you, if you feel that if the Holy Spirit works in you to such an extent, you can say Jesus is Lord and mean it, these, these truths, these privileges will be yours as well, and you will join the church of Jesus Christ. But you must believe in him, put your trust in him, repent of your sin and turn to him, and you'll be saved. And you'll be included in this church, meaning the worldwide universal church of Christ. You have all the privileges of sons of God. So that was positional. I know I whizzed through this, but time marches on. Developmental unity is the third one. Now this is not something that we, we have, like positional unity, but this is something that we attain to as Christians. Look at verse 7. Sorry, let me get a sip of my drink. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. So all Christians share these things, but the Church of Christ is, is very different. And God has given, or Christ has given, different gifts to his church. 
When he talks about grace here, it's not talking about saving grace. It's talking about the grace of gifts. We'll come back to that in a minute. Now look here, there's this this quote in verse 8. When he ascended on high, he he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. Now probably like me, you look at this, you think, "What's, what's this talking about? It's a bit strange, a bit mysterious. Well, this is a quote from Psalm 68. And this psalm talks about God's majestic, triumphal return to his throne in Jerusalem, to Zion. Now some debate about what it actually means, but it's talking about this kind of God coming back in triumph. You can imagine, can't you, an ancient ruler having secured a great victory in battle, coming back in a triumphal procession with all his people cheering him on and a a load of captives in his wake, so people all chained up, coming after him, vanquished foes. This is the kind of picture that is here in Psalm 68. And Paul draws on that and he applies that to Jesus. So this is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ ascending into heaven. That's why he says in verse 9, what does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. So I think the point Paul is making here is that Jesus Christ is not just a man from, from the earth who kind of was ascended to heaven, but actually he came down from heaven. He descended. He died for sin, secured a victory, and then rose again and was glorified and, and enthroned as king of heaven. When he was enthroned, he gave gifts. He poured out his Holy Spirit on the church. So don't get confused about this. A bit, bit, of, bit of an aside there. Paul is using this as an opportunity to teach them about the, the descent, the, the, the humiliation of Christ, the incarnation of Christ, and then the exaltation of Christ as the exalted risen Son of God at God's right hand. It says here, he filled the whole universe. He's talking about the supremacy of Christ. The fact that Christ is it's been given the name that's above every name, is glorified and fills the universe with his power and with his rule. And the church is central to that because the church, as the church grows, as the church does, does the work of Christ by his spirit, the church is extending the rule of Christ in this world. The church is his chosen instrument to bring him glory. And we need to have a very high view of church, brothers and sisters. The church of Christ is central to his purposes. Christ embodies his church. He empowers his church. The church of Jesus Christ is fundamental. As we, we do his work of ministry, we extend his rule over this unruly world. We, as we, we tell people about Jesus, as we win converts, as we build up the church, we are filling the, the world with his rule, his power, and the knowledge of Christ. You know, doesn't it? So in the previous chapter, it says this, verse 10. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realm. So people look at the church, heavenly authorities look at the church, and they see the wisdom of God in his people. They see the wisdom and the glory of the gospel. Deep mysteries. Wonderful things. That's a sermon in itself, that verse, but we'll move on. Verse 11, Christ gives gifts to his church. Everyone likes a gift, don't they? But these gifts are not for the benefit of the recipients. These are for the benefit of the whole church. And the examples Paul lists here are word ministry gifts. So look here in verse 11. It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, 
some to be pastors and teachers. Now, these are not the only gifts that God gives to his church, Christ gives to his church, but these are the gifts that Paul mentions because they are unique and precious gifts which drive the life of the church, without which the church suffers and is, is impoverished. So he talks first and foremost about apostles and prophets. These are foundational gifts. So these began, belong to the early church. In, in chapter 2 we read that, don't we? Built on the, on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. These were men who'd seen the risen Christ and had special revelations and the power of the Holy Spirit to, to prophesy and speak directly from God. But we don't have that anymore. But what we do have, we do have evangelists, we do have pastors and teachers, and they are Christ's gifts to his church. Your pastor, our pastor, is, is God's gift to his church, Christ's gift to his church. In the Greek, pastors and teachers probably means the same role. It could be two separate offices, or it could be the same thing, pastors and teachers. And the word pastor means shepherd. It's a shepherd of the sheep. What's the role of these men? So look at verse 12. Why do we have them? What's the purpose? To prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. So we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God. So these, these men are given to the church for the purpose of preparing God's people for works of service. The word there is the word, similar to the word deacon, diakonos. It means works, serving, whatever it might be in the church. And then the other role of these men is to build up these people, these Christians, into Christian maturity. That's what it means in verse 13. Unity in the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. So this is the other type of unity, developmental unity. So we have relational unity, we've had positional unity. This is developmental unity, maturity in Christ. I want you to notice that maturity as a Christian and the ability to serve God is based very much on word ministry. Word ministry is very important in God's purposes for the church. That's why Paul lists here, I believe, these men who labour in word ministry in particular. They're not the only ones who labour in the church, they're not the only ones who are gifted, but they have a special role in preparing God's people and maturing God's people as God's spirit works amongst them. Word ministry in the church of Jesus Christ is indispensable. What did Jesus say when he, before he went to heaven, ascended to heaven? He said, make disciples of every nation, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. Winning the lost, making disciples, teaching them. Everything Jesus commanded is vital to the life of the church, the growth of the church. It's the means God uses, the preaching of the word. How we should pray, shouldn't we, brothers and sisters, that God would raise up an army of men in this land today to preach the word of God. You know, there are churches not five miles from here which are struggling to fill the pulpit every Sunday. You know, we need men who can labour in this ministry, who are gifted, who are appointed by Christ, gifted by Christ. Not some self-appointed person who just stands up and thinks they can do it, but somebody who's gifted to preach the word, to equip the church, you know, it's a sad and terrible thing when churches struggle to have this because the church will suffer. God is gracious, he can keep his church, but we, we must pray earnestly for workers in the harvest field. Why do we need to do this? We'll look at verse 13 again. 
till we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. The point that Paul is making here is that Christians don't start out as mature believers. I think back you know, to my Christian life, when I was a young Christian, I didn't know, I didn't know anything at all. I, knew, I, knew, I believed in the basic fundamentals of the faith, but I didn't know much. I was immature. You know, I didn't understand anything, very little. And there's still many things I don't understand, but by the grace of God, I understand more than I do now. I've grown in certain areas, but I've still got a long way to go. God's will for you as a Christian, if you're a Christian, God's will for you is that you would grow as a Christian to maturity using the means that God has provided, one of which is word ministry. Now, Paul says, till we reach unity in the knowledge of the Son of God. I don't want you to think here this is talking about head knowledge. It's not talking about intellectual knowledge. Of course, it's important that we understand the depths of the glory of the gospel. That's what pastors do. They try to bring it to you so you understand it in a deeper way. But it's not just head knowledge. You can have all the head knowledge in the world. You can know all the facts about Christ, but still not be a mature Christian. Still not be a Christian at all, in fact. This kind of knowledge here is this kind of personal knowledge. It's talking about a living relationship with Christ. And you've met Christians who've been Christians for many, many years. And they know a lot about Christ. They know a lot about the gospel. But more than that, they have a living, vital relationship with the head. The Holy Spirit is in them, teaching them, and they've they've lived out these truths and practiced them, and they've grown in in character and maturity. These words are not just words of a page and facts that they know, but actually living realities in their lives. Paul's not saying that one day you're going to pass an exam, so you'll get all the knowledge you need, and one day you'll get a certificate, so you, you pass this exam in Christian knowledge, and now you're a qualified, fully mature Christian. not saying that it's not just about head knowledge is it it's about experiential knowledge knowing christ walking with christ verse 13 he talks about this attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of christ it's slightly mysterious it's slightly hard to understand what this means i believe this means everything that god has for us the fullness of maturity which includes knowledge love godliness usefulness in christian service prayerfulness effectiveness obedience And most importantly, Christ-likeness. And it's God's will for us that we would grow up over over the course of a lifetime to complete maturity and fullness and all these things, that Christ might dwell in our hearts through faith, that we might be strengthened as Christians and become so useful and walking close to Christ, empowered by his spirit, mature. And not just individually, but as one man, as a church together. God's not just interested in us as individual Christians. He wants us as a church to mature and grow as well. And that only happens as each part of us, each part of the body grows itself into the head. Does Paul mean that we ever stop growing as Christians? In this life, you'll never ever stop growing as a Christian. You could be 100 years old, you'll still be growing. But there are such things as mature Christians and immature Christians. And it's true about churches as well. There are are mature churches and there are immature churches. They're genuine churches, but they're, they're immature. And some are more mature. Now, it's not wrong to be young and it's not wrong to be immature. It's inevitable, isn't it? If you're young. 
But it is a problem if you don't mature over the years. You know, Peter Pan, the boy that never grew up. There are Christians, I believe, who are like Peter Pan. Spiritual Peter Pans are the boys and girls who never grew up in Christ. If you want to see foolishness and folly, have a boy, a son, aged about four, and put him together with a load of his mates, and you'll see that the Bible is absolutely true when it says folly is bound up in the heart of a child. You know, put, put a load of boys together, they do very foolish things. But that's, that's, that's understandable, isn't it? We don't blame boys for being like that because they're, they're kids. They don't know any better. They do, do stupid and foolish things. They need to learn. We need to be patient with them. But what is very endearing as a child? Yeah, a child's foolishness can be endearing, can't it? So I was going to burn the house down. But if, you, if a child is 18 and about to leave for university, the child, the person, they're still immature. Something terribly wrong, isn't it? It's dangerous. They can't cope with the adult world. They're not prepared and equipped. Parents need to work hard to bring their children up to maturity so they can stand on their own two feet. And I've, I've said this before, and I, I'm not suggesting here that I'm a paragon of maturity, because I'm not, but I know Christians. Some in my own family who've been Christians for many years, longer than I've been alive, and they still seem to be like complete babies. You ask them a simple doctrinal question, they can't even answer it. They don't even know what they really believe. Believe that they may be genuine Christians, but the basics are confusing. They think it in, in a worldly and immature way. You listen to them talk, it's kind of their, their, their reasoning is so worldly and immature. They kind of go to church every week and they're sort of spoon-fed baby food every week. Very basic doctrinal stuff because they can't cope with adult, mature, solid food. You know, why is this? Paul says this, doesn't he, elsewhere. When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the childish ways behind me, the ways of childhood behind me. That's what we ought to do as Christians. We ought to be growing up in Christ to maturity. The writer of Hebrews laments immaturity in the church. He says, in fact, though by this time some of you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word over again. You need milk, not solid food. What's the danger of immaturity? Well, look at verse 14 of of Ephesians 4. So Paul talks here about infants being baby Christians, being tossed back and forth by the waves. So you've got a picture here, an illustration of a boat being tossed around in a storm. I remember once I went to Brighton Pier on a stormy day, and it was magnificent. The clouds were rolling in, the waves, the breakers were coming up. Imagine being in a rubber dinghy in that weather. You'd be at the mercy of the tides. You wouldn't be able to you know, be paddling away. You wouldn't be able to control the boat. Paul says, if you're an immature Christian, a young Christian, that's, that's okay if you, if you are a young Christian, but you need to grow to maturity, otherwise you'll be like the boat tossed around by the waves of the sea. What does he say here? So he says, blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. What Paul says, he says, very sadly, in the church, there will be deceivers. There will be tricksters. The word here means somebody who does this kind of dice game, you know, and deceives people. Once I was walking on Westminster Bridge, um, right near where my daughter was born, actually, I was walking there, and I saw some men um, playing a game. You know, you see those blokes, they have, like, little cups. They put a ball under the cups. They mix them all around like that. You have to guess which, which cup the ball is under, and if you do, you win some money. 
As I walked along, I saw four men doing this, and then a bit further up, another group of men doing this, another group, another group. They're all together, working together, working the tourists' crowd. The idea is you come along, you see these men, you think, oh, I can win a couple of quid. You go there, and no. You're never going to win a game like that. They tuck you up. They, they see a mug coming, they take you to the cleaners. You know, they, they do this game, you're never going to win it. You might win a couple of quid here, and then they, next time they kind of take all your money. Tricksters. Then it's not a fair game, is it? They're not doing it to try and just entertain you. They're doing it to get money off you. That's the picture here. There are deceivers who come into the church with their own twisted doctrines, denying the truth. And immature Christians are in danger of being deceived by these people. We need to be like the Bereans who studied the scriptures to see that these things were true. In the church I grew up in, there were lots of immature Christians, and they were always talking about the, the, the latest thing on Christian TV, the God Channel. The, the latest craze from America coming over, the latest big thing, the, the big speaker, you know, some new book. Into this kind of mystical experiences, and there's hardly any good Bible teaching at all. I remember when I was in Ukraine, some lady sent me The Shack. Did you, did you come across the book The Shack? She was raving about it. It's an amazing book. It's changed my life. She, was, she bought 100 copies, sent them to all her friends. What's happened to us as Christians? We're so naive and deceived that we, the le- next kind of wind of teaching comes over from wherever, you know, it doesn't matter where it's from. We, dis- we, we fall for it hook, line, and sinker, don't we? Because we haven't got maturity, we haven't got discernment, we haven't got wisdom. It's no surprise that a lot of these Christians that I knew who are into this kind of stuff, chasing from one end of the thing to the other, many of them shipwreck their faith. Many of them are not walking with the Lord now. Many of them are kind of on the fringes of the church, embroiled in this worldliness and immorality. Because they haven't got a root. They're not rooted in scripture. They haven't grown in Christ. They may not even be saved at all. What do you rely on to grow as a Christian? Is it the word of God? Is it solid teaching? Or is it kind of mystical experiences, emotions, subjective things, worship music? If you are, then you're in great danger of being led astray. You're you're like sitting ducks. The apostles' teaching was central to the life of the early church. We have the apostles' teaching. We have that foundation. You know, teachers, gifted men, bring the word to us. They open up the storehouse, the treasure house, and bring out new treasures as well as old for the church. And that is what protects a church. That is what builds up a church. We don't need to get hung up about false teaching. We need to study the word of God. Then we'll spot it a mile off as we grow in Christ. Now you say, okay, I understand that, that teaching ministry is important. Word ministry is important. But I want you to remember that, that this word ministry is not just a teaching ministry, a public ministry, like you know, a pulpit ministry. It's not just people standing at the front like me talking. Praise God for itinerant preachers. Praise God for, for preachers who travel around and preach the gospel. These great men, you know, Martin Lloyd-Jones... In, back in the day or you know John MacArthur or John Piper these great men we, we thank the Lord for them but in, in Ephesians 4 chapter 11 so ch- chapter 4 verse 11 these men are rooted in the local church they're rooted in the local church it talks about pastors and teachers it's not talking about television evangelists it's not talking about men who have this kind of YouTube ministry not just about them they've got a valid ministry perhaps but it's no substitute for the local church. A pastor, a biblical pastor, is not just standing up teaching once on a Sunday and then the rest of the week he's off playing golf, whatever. B, 
Biblical pastor is a shepherd of the people. Biblical pastor works tirelessly to bring them to the kind of maturity that is envisaged here. Pastor can't change anyone. He can't change their hearts, but he works hard. That's the means God uses. Looks at his sheep. He loves his sheep. Entrusted to him. He teaches them. He encourages them. He challenges them. He admonishes them. He prays for them. He prays with them. He models a Christ-like life. He trains them. He, he feeds them and teaches them. He, he weans them off milk so they can, they can feed on the solid food of the word. He is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me, Paul says in Colossians. This is biblical pastorship. The pastor knows his people and he says, I need to, I'm going to work tirelessly to bring you to that maturity in Christ, the fullness of Christ, to, using word ministry from the pulpit but also informally throughout the week. Let me say this, if you've got a pastor, you should have a pastor, that man has a God-given responsibility to care for your spiritual well-being. He shouldn't manage your life for you, it's not heavy shepherding, it's not it's like a cult, but he should be concerned about your spiritual well-being, not just your physical well-being, or your financial well-being, but your spiritual well-being. And you, you, we should pray for our pastors, we should love and pray for them, it's not an easy job, and they'll be accountable to God. Don't resist this. We live in a very individualistic culture, don't we? Some people, they find it a threat when a pastor shows an interest in their spiritual well-being. It's actually a blessing. It's a gift. That's what their God-given job is. They watch over you as men who must give account. They set before you the glories of Christ then teach you the practical outworking of this and encourage you to live a life which is worthy of it. A word about teaching ministry. If you agree with me that teaching ministry is important... Question for you. Do you come to church expecting a tedious lecture? Perhaps that's what you're getting now. I hope not. But do you, do you come here just rolling in? And, oh, I was going to be okay. Do you come prayerfully, expectantly, praying for your pastor, whoever's preaching, that the Lord would help me? It's, it's not easy preaching. I find it very difficult. Spiritually and in, in every other way. But come. If we, if we don't come prayerfully, expectantly, praying that God will speak to us in a special way, is it any surprise we go away empty? Do we come on Sunday morning or evening expecting that through the preaching of the word we might take another step towards Christian usefulness and maturity? This is the means that God has appointed. Do we make use of it? Do we appreciate this gift that Christ has given to the church or do we take it for granted? Are we casual about church attendance? If you're not meeting with the saints, you're missing out on what God may be saying to the church through the pastor or the preacher. You know what John Calvin said? He said, those who neglect the public teaching of the word, those who neglect it and think they're going to be mature and perfect in Christ are mad. That's the word he used. You're mad. If you think you can mature in Christ without the means that God has appointed, you're not going to succeed. You're not going to get anywhere in maturity and progress in the Christian life. The church envisaged in Ephesians has a local expression. It's very important that you're part of a church where word ministry is taken seriously. And also part of a church where the leaders can exercise the kind of biblical pastorship that's, that's talked about in these verses. And you, where you can be rooted in, in, a, in a company of real believers. You can get fantastic teaching online. I could sit, here, sit at home this morning and listen to a great sermon if I had the internet at home, which I don't. 
I could listen to a great sermon, world-class teaching, but that's no substitute for the local church. I could go to a church and just attend the Sunday morning service and hear a good sermon and go away in a way built up. and I know a little bit more about Christ and the gospel. But if you're not engaging with the community of God's people, if you're not under the, the authority of a pastor who knows you and loves you and knows what's going on in your life, it's not really a biblical church. If you're not part of a church where there's opportunities to serve in the way that's envisaged here, to build up the body, works of service in the church, then there's something wrong. And you need to be part of a body of people where there's this kind of sanctifying process of rubbing along with real people, people that you might find difficult. If you don't have that, you won't know anything or you'll know very little about the growth envisaged in these passages. When you choose a church, the key factor should not be the music or the programs. What's their doctrinal position? Does it correspond to the creed, the things that we read earlier? What's the word ministry like? Are they serious about it? Are the leaders serious about the word? Are they faithful to the word? Do they encourage growth and maturity? Do they encourage and promote holy and blameless living, which we're called to? Is there a depth of fellowship which enables me to serve people and be served, to know people and to rub along with people? Isn't it foolish to choose a church based on sub-biblical or non-biblical criteria? Choose a biblical church. May May we be, by the grace of God, such a church. Let me say this as well, you know, membership of a church is important. Belonging to a church. If you become a member of a church, we have a system of membership in our church. It's a recognition of the importance of the local church and the unity of which I'm an active part. Membership says I'm committed to a particular group of local people. I'm not just floating around between churches. I'm committed to this body of people. Not just the church in general. We can all be, we can all be committed to the kind of the universal church. But what about the local church? Membership says I'm not going to get up, up sticks and leave as soon as I get offended by somebody that I can't bear with. Membership says I affirm that this church teaches the creed, the up, upholds the creed, the things that we believe as fundamentals in its teaching. And membership says I'm humble enough to publicly and consciously place myself under the authority of men that Christ has appointed to lead this church so that I might be prepared, prepared for service and built up in my faith. Membership says, I submit to the accountability of others in the church and promise to offer accountability to them that we might all grow to unity in the faith. I commit to offering my time and gifts to build up the church in this place. This is the, these are principles rooted in the book of Ephesians. What's the alternative? It's a kind of rootless, maverick Christianity. Standing on the edge, looking in, and choosing the bits that suit us. And if you do that, you may well miss out on the blessings of growth and belonging to a church. dangerous position to be in isn't it I know Christians who are not really in any church just wandering around building up the the body is the responsibility of all of us so it says here doesn't it verse 15 speaking the truth in love we will in all things grow up into him who is the head that is Christ from him the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does his work These men who labour in word ministry prepare God's people for works of service. But the church, the membership, the responsibility of building up the church is the responsibility of all of us. Speaking the truth in love, verse 15 says. What's this talking about? Well, 
it's not just when you have to confront somebody and say, well, I'm going to tell you something, you know, you, 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 whatever it might be, you say something horrible to somebody, you kind of say, I'm, I'm doing this in love. What this is talking about is contrasting with the previous verse, which is talking about deceivers who are telling lies to people. What this is saying is that actually men of God, preachers and pastors, should be speaking the truth, and they should do it in love. Because it is possible to preach the truth, speak the truth, and not in love, isn't it? Truth without love is, is a terrible thing. You know, Truth without love can be damaging. Everything we say must be done in love. But that means must speak the truth. And that, that applies to kind of public teaching ministry, but also in the interactions with each other. Speaking the truth is radical, isn't it? Men don't love the truth. Men hate the truth. Men shy away from the truth. That's why some of, some of the, um, the, the best churches in Brighton who preach the word of God, that's why they're empty on a Sunday. There's like ten people there because they preach the truth. Whereas there are massive churches which don't preach the truth because people don't love the truth. Isn't it sad that some of these churches are preaching to ten people, fifteen people on a Sunday, some of the best word teaching in the whole of Brighton and Hove? People choose to go somewhere else which doesn't preach the truth. But Christian, Christian people, we should be people who speak the truth in love. Every conversation, every word that we speak, we should be edifying, rooted in the truth. It's really important that we have edifying conversations as Christians. After the service, I mean, it's, it's okay to talk about football, talk about the weather, but it's, it's good to have kind of conversations which build each other up, isn't it? We speak... What we speak is based on doctrinal truth. We don't just say, I, I, I see God this way. I, I've, been in, I've been amongst Christians before in another church. People start saying, oh, I, I see God this way. There's no, there's no knowledge of the Bible. They weren't speaking the truth. They, they thought they were, but they weren't. It was just foolish. We need to speak the truth to each other. Last bit. We've got this image here, haven't we, in verse 16, of the church, a body growing, growing up and being strengthened by every supporting ligament as it grows and builds itself up in love. Christ is the head of the body. Christ is the living, dynamic head. Without him, the church would not survive. But he pours his life into the church through his spirit. He's the living source of growth. And this is a normal functioning church that Paul talks about here, a church that builds itself up. as each part does its work. It's very hard to do that, isn't it? It's hard to build up the church of Christ if you don't have meaningful relationships with people. If you don't really know anybody in the church, it's very difficult to really build them up in love, isn't it? And they can't build you up in love either. Or if you bear a grudge with somebody, you're not getting on with somebody, it's very difficult to, bear, to, to build them up, isn't it, in love. Are we doing the work that God has gifted us for? A question to ask, isn't it? Whatever gift God has given you, I'm not talking about dramatic gifts or supernatural gifts, gifts of time, gifts of hospitality, gifts of administration, gifts of comfort, encouragement and prayer, whatever it is, whatever gift God has given you, whatever ability God has given you, you ought to be using it, and I ought to be using it for the growth of the church, to build up that body in Christ. Don't bury it in the ground. There is no greater cause than the kingdom of God. There's no greater cause in the church of Jesus Christ which is central to his purposes 
I want to encourage us this morning as Christian people to use the opportunities that God has given us and don't waste our lives. Use them well. It starts with small steps, doesn't it? Don't, don't rush off after the service. Stay and have a cup of tea. Talk to someone. Who can I build up today with my words by speaking the truth? Come to a prayer meeting. Do you realise if, if you don't come to a prayer meeting, I know sometimes there are good reasons why people can't come. If you don't come, then you're saying to other people, this doesn't really matter, it's not really important. Come along and encourage younger people. Or older people, for that matter. Come along, encourage people, build up the body. You know, when, when, you, when you understand this about building up the body, every encounter you have can be an opportunity to build up other Christians. You know, I, I drove to the airport with somebody the other day. I had, a, I had an edifying conversation with my friend. And my friend prayed for me and we edified each other. We built each other. I hope I built him up anyway in the Lord. If we didn't have a vain, empty conversation, we talked about the things of God and it strengthened us both. Even a basic encounter can make you, you know, give you an opportunity to go about God's business. Let's have godly ambitions for each other. If you're a mature Christian, you have matured over the years through this word ministry. Seek out younger Christians to, to disciple and help to build up. When I was a young Christian, there was a man who used to meet me once a week for a Bible study, a mature Christian. And I used to love doing this Bible study. I learned so much. And you know, this man said to me, he said, Ben, I'm also encouraged by you. And I thought, why is he encouraged by, by me? I don't know anything, but he, he enjoyed it, and I encouraged him as well. We built each other up. That's the picture here, both mutually building each other up, that the church might be strengthened, that we might all benefit, that Christ might be glorified. If you're an older woman, I'm sorry this is a bit, bit kind of nitty-gritty, but if you're an older woman, you've walked with Christ for a long time, you know what it's like to, to bring up children and relate to a husband and a family. Don't waste that knowledge and experience. Find younger people that you can train up and teach and work with and walk with and encourage and build up in love as you speak the truth. Point them to Christ. Speak his word. And if you're an older man, do the same with younger men. Now, just to finish up, life decisions. If building up the church is so important, as each part does its work, each part of the body, does that reflect itself in the way that we make choices? So another, another thing about guidance. If you're seeking God's guidance in your life, the question to ask is, is this decision that I'm making, big or small, going to help me, help me build up the body of Christ? I meet so many young adults. I was at my brother's wedding a few weeks ago, and I, I hear the, the young people talking there. They're all young compared to me these days. I talk to them, and they say, they're just so aimless in their lives. This living for experiences and making memories all the time, putting it on Facebook, pictures. There's nothing wrong with that, but if we're Christian young people, the focus of our lives should be building up Christ, building up his kingdom, working hard to bring people to maturity, having ambitions for each other, that in a year's time from now we might be all mature, more like Christ with the fullness of him in us. Whatever decision I make, can it, if I move house, is it, is it the best move to help me build up the body of Christ in the local church? If it comes to relationships and dating, is this, is this a move that's going to help me serve together with this person to build up the body of Christ? Because the purpose of the Christian family and marriage is to build up the body. It's not just for, for your benefits that you can have a good time. It's there to build up the, the kingdom and the body. So let me just encourage us again to remember those three types of unity. First of all, our positional unity. We have these things with all Christians together. Because of that, we need to remember we are deeply united, however different we may be. And because of that, we should have this relational unity. We should make sure we, we 
maintain the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. We work hard to maintain unity with each other because we do have that, that deep unity in Christ. And then we grow over a lifetime to maturity, to this kind of developmental unity. We're all on the same page. We're all mature equally together, the fullness of Christ in all of us. That's what the pastor's working hard to do, to make, make, us, make sure we're all mature as one person together in knowledge, in love, in goodness, in Christ-likeness. The purpose of this is that Christ might be glorified. The church is precious. Make church your priority. Because it's precious to Christ. It's part of his purpose, central to his purpose. I think I've said enough today. Let's pray quickly and then we'll sing our song.